I'm John. And I'm Nick. And you're listening to the Archive, our ever growing library of everything, one hour at a time. August 8th, 2019, uh, came and went with, uh, out much notice, um, at least in the, the feeds that I follow. Well, our guest noticed. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the archive, Travis. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I, well, I kind of noticed. I um I went and saw a movie on that day, and I was informed that there was a lot of significance to me seeing the movie on that day. Who informed you? Uh, Francie Futterman. Nice. Yep. <laughs> the great she informant of, of us all. Eat me in St. Louis fame. Yep. Yes. Which is a podcast that you two do. <laughs> that oh, is, is you and Nick. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I am ah. the Yoko Ono of the Archive Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that's fair to say because you and I have a beautiful love and it did not destroy the Archive. So, <laughs> yes, you are the Yoko Ono of the Archive. But did it inspire a race war? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> <laughs> there is a possibility of that. Yeah, he, he made some slanderous comments about me and Bosnians the other day that we actually had to smooth over in the comments section. <laughs> Uh, but have, have, I'm sorry, I got us off track. <laughs> have we said the significance of that day yet? Well, so that day, uh, was the 50th anniversary of the, uh, night of the, uh, Tate, Sharon Tate murders in, uh, Hollywood, California, perpetrated famously, infamously by, uh, members of the Charles Manson family, which is the subject of this episode. And I guess this is a good time to say that uh, while it is probably not our intent to belittle uh, or um, is this the Drew disclaimer? Yes, yes it is. Okay. It is. You're, you're saying that we don't want to make light of a terrible tragedy. Yes. Yeah. And we don't want to celebrate a, a tragedy either. No. Um, and, and to that end, um, it's sort of always been my intention when we started um, talking about this episode that it would be less focused on the murders themselves and more about the family and the dynamics that begat them. I thought you um, were going to say the music and it's like, <laughs> Oh wow. <laughs> oh, believe me, we will get there. I, I told Travis earlier, I was going to come into this pretending like I only knew about Manson's album and nothing else <laughs> in his life. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I brought that up. I started off there because, um, I had sort of intended that this episode would kind of coincide with, uh, that anniversary. Um, but I was really surprised by how little attention seemed to be paid to that fact for whatever reason, for better or for worse. Um, and, uh, I, it started making me wonder, like, are we living in a post Manson era where it's no longer, quite the cultural obsession that it once was. Yeah, that's a good point, because uh, Tarantino could have 
released it on the anniversary or could have talked about that. I never heard anything about that at all. That Apparently, that was originally the plan. There oh, was really? talk about releasing the film that weekend, yeah. and whoever decided it was a bad idea was right and <laughs> moved up the release date. Yeah, that was good. Um, but yeah, I, I also didn't hear about it from anyone except for Francie fact-finding Futterman. <laughs> And of course, we're talking about once a time, once upon a time in Hollywood. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. I thought you'd mentioned that. Uh, I, I, saw, I said I saw a movie. I didn't oh, okay. say which movie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I saw Toy Story four, and that <laughs> meant a lot to me that night. <laughs> um, well, so we might be living post uh, Manson hysteria, but I have uh, grown up uh, within its clutches firmly, um, in as much as anyone who has a fascination with something without letting it consume their life entirely. Um, so different from your Disney yes. obsession. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just shy of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and I guess maybe that's not actually fair. Um, but I did, uh, I first Manson first sort of came on my radar at a time. Um, and this dovetails kind of nicely with one of the previous episodes that you were on, Travis, when we talked about wine. Uh, <laughs> Manson loved wine. Big wine he and Jean-Luc Picard, <laughs> big vineyard guys. <laughs> uh, the uh, murderers episode. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned this uh, in talking about like my interest in serial killers in like high school, but it seemed like there was a time in the early nineties when mass murder was, uh, part of the cultural zeitgeist. It was seemingly everywhere. There were a lot of primetime TV shows that were devoted to it. And, uh, tabloids were big on serial killers and stuff. See well, distinction there because it is serial killers. That was more in the zeitgeist at the time. And as opposed to today, hmm. which is, people who just walk into a place and start shooting people. I'm not trying to say it. One is better than the, I'm not, you know what? I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say it also coincides with the 24 hour news cycle. Like, you know, when, when you have these networks that are on constantly, they need something to fill that space and something that would fill the space and also hold people's attention were these horrific acts. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. Uh, but anyway, that's what, that's what got me aware of who Manson was. Um, periodically he would get trotted out for interviews on shows, talk shows or, uh, news programs and say a bunch of batshit crazy stuff, make weird faces at the camera. So like immediately I was totally into this guy. He was like a human cartoon character. Um, he, he's like somewhere between Wile E. Coyote and Yosemite Sam, I guess. What, one thing that surprised me when I was, uh, you know, trying to brush up a little bit before coming on is, uh, he's kind of a one trick pony. If that's what he does, he makes weird faces. He says weird stuff. <laughs> and then he was alive at a time when people were like, you know what? I can get on board with what this guy's saying. That so, is absolutely a, a good point that I think we'll talk about more. So I, I'm not really that familiar with him. Um, do you know if he was always like that or if that was heightened after his arrest? So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, he, 
he had a a rough childhood. I, I'll never make any excuses for him, but he he had a really rough childhood. He was bounced around uh, from homes. He was in and out of prison from a very young age, um, and his mother actually uh, got pregnant with him when he, he she was fifteen, and her parents like kicked her out of the house. But um, I say all that because he actually developed this coping mechanism when he was in these uh, children's homes and uh, juvenile detention facilities where his plan was if someone came to pick on you he was never bigger but he could out crazy them and to where they wouldn't mess with him anymore he he took that to the extreme until, i mean until his dying day he was able to out crazy <laughs> just about everybody what's funny well okay i guess before we get too far into this this is probably where we introduce travis would you care to do the honors <laughs> So this is where we'll talk about the Perfect. Uh, yeah, I, I in in researching Manson. So I guess uh, I should acknowledge some of the sources for my information. Um, I read Helter Skelter when I was a teenager. I haven't reread it, um, but uh, I have recently. Um, checked out there was a, a podcast that we talked about in offline called it's, it was a season of a show called you must remember this you must is, remem- remember manson well oh. the season was called you must remember manson oh, the okay. show itself is called you must remember this and it's uh about the history of hollywood sort of the un undiscovered history of of hollywood and so that podcast really looks at the manson family through the lens of the film industry and the tendrils that were affected by his involvement there. Um, and then also recently I read a book called chaos, which is by Tom O'Neill. Who's a journalist who did some writing for like premier magazine, um, uh, entertainment weekly, lots of, he's an entertainment journalist who spent 20 years digging into this, um, between 99 and 2019. Um, but the, the, most background, I think that podcast, you must remember Manson, is probably the most in-depth look that I've been able to find, other than maybe Manson in his own words, which I haven't read, um, talking about his upbringing. <laughs> I could only imagine what that book is. I know. <laughs> Just the weirdest nonsense. Four pages are blank in the middle. Like, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um but uh, one of the things that I found um, just today was that apparently he had, um, in, in one of the, the stints in prison, he'd somehow found, found out about Scientology and decided that he, he, was, he was really into it. He identified himself as a Scientologist, even though he was not registered as a member of the Church of Scientology. Um, huh. So <laughs> That's but, weird, because I've never heard anything weird about Scientology, right? Before, yes, a squeaky, squeaky clean reputation. Uh, but he, it, when he got out of prison at one point, he tried to enlist with with Scientology, and he had an audit done. And um, in the back and forth, he ultimately ultimately concluded, or at least 
said this in his defense that Scientology was too crazy for him. <laughs> so, actually, one of his followers too. Um, they uh, they kind of were at a crossroads where um, they needed to get uh, some money back from for Charles Manson. Uh, someone owed Charles Manson money, and his follower found out that the person he was trying to get the money back from was a Scientologist, and he decided he didn't want to mess with him <laughs> because he knows how that group is and that's coming from someone in the Manson family. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. So th- this Amazing. Is, this is pre-murders then. Yeah. So this is like, um, I think he was, he was interested in Scientology around like 60 or 61. Um, and that was probably after his second or third stint in some kind of correctional facility. Do you know what he was jailed for? Primarily auto theft. Um, he learned at an early age uh, how to hotwire cars, and so that became his big thing. Um, but he also... Uh, uh, Fast and the Furious prequel <laughs> right there. <laughs> They've gone as Hobbs, far as they can. Shaw, and Manson. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he was uh, around uh, the Midwest a lot, back and forth between like Indianapolis, Peoria, um, Involved in a lot of like petty theft um, that eventually graduated to to Grand Theft Auto and moved west to try to get away from that. And throughout all of this, there's also a streak of manipulation developing. Um, Okay. You know, famously, he is known as a cult leader who inspired his followers to take action on his behalf um, and, and kill people for him. And... For a long time, the the sort of shorthand that I had always heard was that he picked that ability up later, like when he was in prison. Later on in prison, he figured out how to manipulate people, um, and it just so happened that he emerged into a culture that was sort of uh, willing to be right. manipulated, yeah, or if not willing, at least heavily susceptible based on the the nature of the day. So he was actually, he, he was, he was brought up in a a very religious home. I want to say Lutheran. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he, his ideology is based off of a weird mashup of a lot of different ideologies. Um, and honestly with Charles Manson, I think it's probably because he couldn't keep them straight and remember all of any of them. So he just went with what he remembered. remembered. So, uh, you know, we mentioned Scientology, uh, uh, very strict religious upbringing as well gets mixed into it. And then while he was in prison, um, he showed some intellectual promise. So they entered him into a business class where he learned about how to win friends and influence people. (laughs) And the the book, the book, the like business organizational, like uh, strategy book. And he mixed some of that bullshit into his ideology, too. Um, and then it came out as the Manson family. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the funny thing about that, I can't remember if they allude to this in the, the podcast or not, but he was largely illiterate. Like, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't really read very well. So that sort of leads me to believe that someone was helping him, like mm-hmm. someone was possibly reading that book to him. Uh, in prison, which is just a fantastic image, you know, like sitting down with like a bedtime story with Charles Manson reading this uh, <laughs> this business book to him. 
Um, but anyway, he, he exerted, uh, influence over women really early in his life. Um, and, uh, that became kind of a pattern whenever he wasn't in prison, he would, um, shack up with women, usually younger women, often from broken homes. He started to develop a type or a strategy for targeting certain individuals. And part of that comes from his time in prison as well. So Mm -hmm. he would see, um, pimps at the time uh, that were incarcerated and what really just like caught his attention about it is how do you make other people do what you want to do uh, what what you want them to do and so like he mixed that in with the other three aspects that we talked about and you know he came out and was able through a a weird mix of all of that and LSD to talk people into doing what he wanted them to do yeah uh, he gets out of prison in 1967 and moves to San Francisco just as the summer of love is hitting. Um, so teenagers are flocking to hate Ashbury and there are lots of drugs, lots of music and Charles Manson thinks it's great. Yeah. I, I can't get over the fact that he is a failed musician. I like the heart <laughs> of all of this, which is weird to me. Um, there's something about struggling artists that just leads them to be the worst people in <laughs> the whole world. Um, so yeah, uh, it's just funny because as, uh, as the like thread gets worse with Charles Manson, as, as he becomes more and more just like fixated on these ideas. And I'm sorry, I'm skipping out of the history. No, 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 this is fine. um, You know, he he becomes fixated on the idea of Helter Skelter. He becomes fixated on this this idea of a race war. Okay, can we pause and give some sort of context what Helter Skelter is? When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. When, when the family was finally apprehended and uh, brought to trial, the, the basis of the prosecution was that Manson had this notion that there was going to be this apocalyptic race war between uh, black and white people in the United States. And part and parcel with that he was the second coming of christ mm-hmm. and his followers were were like christ's disciples okay. so they were like chosen ones and that's why they were able to anticipate this because he had um received the the message that was coded in the beatles white album and specifically in the song helter skelter okay and so that it, the the allegation of the prosecution was that he convinced his followers that um, when when this race war was not taking shape quickly enough, they needed to jumpstart it. And so the murders were they were going to pin it on yes black culture, the Black Panthers, Black yes. Panthers specifically. Okay, and so uh, that would inspire uh, a backlash against the Black Panthers. And uh, the ensuing war would wipe out most people. And Meanwhile, they were going to be sitting down in a bunker somewhere. They were going to be the Beatles. <laughs> yes, for real. With I, the I wish the I was kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were going to be. They wait. Were, is that where John Lennon's been this whole time? 
<laughs> he's just sitting there waiting for Manson to show up with everybody. Hello. Any day <laughs> now. <laughs> he's sitting in that hole in the desert. Yeah, that's the other thing. There was this like uh, secret hole in Death Valley that they were going to find. And there was a, a secret civilization inside the earth that, that they would find through this hole. And that's where they would hide out. And then after the war was over, they would emerge and then rule over the remaining uh, landscape. It, I, I just want to say, like, before we get deeper into this, it, it probably feels like we're skipping around a lot or that. Uh, you know, we're exaggerating or making things up. No, like this was all just like part of his everyday, like active, uh, well, like theology of life. Yeah. The, the thing that in, uh, again, I don't know a lot about it. And in hindsight, when you talk about him kind of taking advantage of the hippie movement, mm-hmm. which you think about brotherly love and then combining that with a race war is bizarre to me. It, uh, wait until we get into okay. the the even deeper background behind this, because yeah. as crazy as that premise is, it's actually not as ridiculous as what may have actually been involved. All right, um, but so that that helter skelter premise is that's sort of the official storyline for for what happened. He he moves to San Francisco. He begins acquiring female followers. Um, and pimping them out, um, using them to gain leverage and drugs and money. Um, and they do a lot of, tra- once he has a, a, a pretty significant group, I think like a dozen or 15 people, mostly women that are, that are in his fold. Um, they get a bus, a school bus, they paint it black and they start driving up and down the coast. Um, and all this while they're, they're stealing cars. Um, they're dealing drugs doing lots of petty crime, um, in order to stay alive. And he's throughout this time, he's absolutely like preaching this, uh, sort of a similar message to what was very popular in that scene. Um, it's very anti-materialistic and, uh, based on love and, you know, just living your life and not hurting anyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so they would like dumpster dive for food. Like that's how much like no possessions. And then there was actually this uh the story that was told on on the podcast that I listened to for reference and they were saying that he was hanging out with uh Dennis Wilson, who was one of the drummer for the Beach Boys, which we'll probably get into more later. Yeah. But um and Dennis Wilson thought he was like full of it. Um, and he, they're sitting on this uh, like park bench and, uh, Charles Manson is talking about his philosophy of non-materialism and saying all of this stuff about how possessions don't matter. And this guy walks by and he's like, well, if you really believe that, why do you have such a nice bus? And he had a bus <laughs> and it was like, it was outfitted with a dining room table and record players and all this stuff. And, uh, Charles Manson looks at him and goes, do you want it? Take it. And he throws him the keys. The guy gets in the bus and he drives off and he goes around for like a few hours. And then he's like, I guess that guy wasn't full of it. And he brings the bus back to him. And then Charles Manson turns to Dennis Wilson, the drummer from the Beach Boys, and goes, see, everything works out. I mean, I'm a little convinced myself. So sorry, I just wanted yeah, to tell no, like that's yeah, great. That's a yeah. great story. That ties in nicely with the move to Los Angeles because so uh 
they are, I forget where they were living at that point, but yeah, they're, they're dumpster diving and the, the followers, the girls are hitchhiking to get around. And one of the people that picks up a couple of them, I forget which two members it was, but the beach beach boy, Dennis Wilson picks them up, takes them back to his house. Uh, they don't know who he is, but they report back to Charles Manson and Charles Manson, of course, being a music fan and an aspiring musician immediately knows who he is. And so he wants to go back there. And so thus begins this sordid friendship slash, uh, psychological abuse um, that goes on for like an entire year with Manson and his followers basically crashing Dennis Wilson's house, living there for months, um, racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in um, like food and damages, gonorrhea treatments. Um, yeah. None, none of that is an exaggeration. <laughs> um, they actually, the first night uh, they, Dennis Wilson left and he left the two girls there and they, he comes back to every men- member of the Manson family at this huge party at his own house. <laughs> and he like walks in and he's like, whatever. And they party for like three days. And that's how he meets uh, Charles Manson. Charles Manson, like uh, he, he asked, he's like, you look a little crazy. Do I have to worry about you? And Charles Manson got down on his hands and knees and started kissing Dennis Wilson's feet. And uh, he was like, you oh, know, you're not crazy. Yeah. Well, basically, <laughs> are you still afraid of me? I worship you. So, yeah. yeah. So, this John, <laughs> you look a little crazy. <laughs> Do I have to be worried here? <laughs> you old ham bone. <laughs> All right. You're cool. Let's keep going. <laughs> so this this is where Manson finally thinks he's actually going to this is his ticket, right? He he can get Dennis Wilson to produce his music. Pretty girl. Pretty pretty girl. Cease to exist. Just come and say you love me. Give up your work Come on, you can't be I'm your kind That doesn't work out for a variety of reasons. Um, <laughs> Mainly, it's not any good. It's not good. <laughs> I, I know he did make an album. I thought he helped with it. He did. Dennis okay. Wilson had, um, he hosted, I think, one or two recording sessions for Manson. He coordinated them. He paid for them. Um, and the intention was that uh, the Beach Boys label Brother Records would release Manson's album. But at this point, Dennis Wilson didn't really have a whole lot of clout with that label. Um, and no one else thought Manson's records were any good. Mm-hmm. You know, None of the people actually in charge um, thought they were any good. But that's okay, because... <laughs> Manson has a ringer in one of Dennis Wilson's best friends, Terry Melcher, who is Doris Day's son and who is a producer for the birds and the mamas and the papas and all of these, um, California, uh, Laurel Canyon bands that are becoming very popular at this time. And so he, uh, works his way into, into Terry Melcher's life. Um, Melcher kind of, depending on who you ask 
was either just grudgingly going along with Manson so that he could get to the chicks, or he was actually totally enthralled with Manson. Um, and there, there are different stories about that. See, I bring up a third point where I think he felt sorry for Charles Manson. Oh, I could see um, that too. He, you know, uh, when, because at this point they were living on the ranch, uh, the, uh, the spawn, uh, spawn, movie ranch. Yeah, spawn movie ranch. Um, they're eating out of dumpsters. There are all of these people that depend on Charles Manson to live and Charles Manson can't deliver anything for them. He doesn't have a job. He has no talent whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The only thing he can do is convince drugged up kids to follow him. Um, and that doesn't pay the bills. So I, uh, Terry Melcher, you know, goes out, he, he goes to the ranch, he sees this situation and I think he like out of pity says, I, will bring around my friend that has a recording studio in a van and we will record an album. Um, but I, I don't know if you heard this, but I always heard when, uh, Charles Manson got in front of a microphone or like equipment, he would freeze up. Yeah. And not only that, because he didn't know how to do it. Like he didn't know how to use the equipment. And so they'd be like, do a mic check. And he'd be like, don't tell me how to do my music. And so, like, he would not just cooperate on the most basic level to get the album produced. And so it was always just a train wreck, even worse than, you know, when he was doing it to his utmost ability. <laughs> I, you know, if I knew somebody who had convinced a bunch of hippie, drugged-up teenagers to live off of him, I would not give him sympathy. Myself, you know, I would give them sympathy. Maybe. You don't feel bad for John at all. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Travis. <laughs> it's, I think it's worth noting though, that he, he does seem somehow to influence very famous people to allow him to hang on longer than you would think a reasonable person yeah. would. Um, and part of that probably is the drugs and, and the fact that Manson has all these girls and these are uh, dudes who are just like living it up. You know, they have like no obligations, no responsibilities, endless money. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, Melcher and Dennis Wilson were part of this group that called themselves the Golden Penetrators, <laughs> who allegedly had this like bad. mission. Yeah. I know what their mission is. <laughs> <laughs> um. So it sort of tracks that they would like find value in hanging out with Manson to a mm -hmm. certain degree, but but eventually they all get tired of him uh, uh, being in their periphery, um, and I think Melcher at this point this is like late sixty eight going into sixty nine, and Melcher is dating Candace Bergen, and she doesn't like Charles Manson, thinks he's weird. Um, I I had no idea she was connected to it. Yeah, yeah. Th that's the thing. I, it's it's interesting how many people were actually implicated in this circle, but whose names have never really been publicly associated with it. It, it almost made Hollywood at the time feel like a small town. Like it everyone was, knew yeah. of him. Totally. He was at parties with like all of these people. Like, um, you know, when it came out, like, well, you know, Charles Manson's behind all this. Everybody was like, Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Like, they were like, Oh, yeah. okay. Of course. Yeah. And in fact, that was like sort of the sentiment around Hollywood. Um, after the murders happened, 
people were certainly terrified and a lot of big stars, uh, you know, took out, they, they hired security guards and they um, put in alarm systems and stuff. They started locking their doors, which they hadn't ever done, felt the need to do before. Um, but there was also this sentiment that like, well, uh, the phrase live freaky, die freaky becomes like kind of a, a an anthem for the victims of the murders because they were just part of this social circle that was just doing a lot of drugs and hanging out with really fringe characters. Mm-hmm. And so the perspective on the more conservative side was like, well, yeah, of course, of course, one of these drugged up hippies eventually killed somebody, obviously. Um, but yeah, so he, he is in contact with, if not like, um, if not working with necessarily a lot of these figures like the mamas and the papas, um, mama Cass, they all shared drug dealers. They all had the same connections. Um, so there was a, um, a drug dealer that Manson thought was a black Panther. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, the Manson family got, uh, got these drugs and sold them to this guy. This guy comes back to the Manson family and says like, these drugs are poison. Like that I'm not paying for this. Give me my money back. Um, and that's where this whole altercation starts. Do we know if the drugs were bad or probably yeah, yeah. or like diluted or whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah. So at this point they're super desperate. Like they've had these highs and lows when they're living with Dennis Wilson. Everything's great. When they've got the attention of Terry Melcher, it's fine because they think eventually he's going to, Manson's going to get a break. He's going to get a record deal and then they'll be rich and, and all their problems will be solved. So they can, they continue living with him, but it becomes an increasingly more desperate situation when it's clear that that's not going to happen. And he starts becoming a darker figure within the family. So the one thing I want to underscore as we talk about Charles Manson is how much of a loser he was. So I want to, I want (laughs) to hit on one boy. So Terry Melcher was supposed to come out to spawn ranch and help to meet with Charles Manson. Um, Manson drops everything. He tells all of his followers, stop preparing for Helter Skelter. Stop preparing for this race war. Put away the dune buggies, put away the machine guns. He teaches his followers how to make cookies and bake cakes. They clean everything from top to bottom and Melcher doesn't show up. And that, like, Manson, who knows how to explain everything away, doesn't That's know right. how to explain this yeah. to his followers. So this is the first and time... He's emotionally crushed, the, the thing that's yeah. so important to him. Yeah, because, absolutely. And, you know, terrible. this is why I mentioned it earlier, is, like, under this terrible tragedy is this guy that really just wanted to become a musician. Like, yeah. uh, any time... The, the the slight glimmer of hope of becoming a musician came up. He would drop all of the cult bullshit and be like, yes. "I will be wherever you need me to be yes. to be a musician." The only yeah. thing you can't tell me is how to work a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a series about a guy who's an agent through time, and he represents Hitler and Manson <laughs> and saves all of these. <laughs> Terrible situations. I, yeah, yeah, it's sad. But so Melcher doesn't show up, and Charles Mason doesn't know what to do. So this is actually the first time he goes to the Tate home because this is where Melcher used to live. Okay. Um, but Charles Manson, being a pathetic loser, <laughs> Melcher has left. Manson doesn't know where he lives now, so he just goes to the house where he knew he lived at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he like he keeps asking where is where is Melcher? Where's Terry? Uh, yeah, yeah, where's Terry? I'm supposed to have this deal with him. Is there a scene of yes. that in the movie? Yes. Okay. It's a little bit the, the details are a little different, but Sharon Tate was there when when Manson yeah. visited. Yeah. yeah. And they like make eye contact and stuff. And so um but he keeps asking where Terry is and he won't leave until someone like forcibly has him removed from the property because he doesn't know how to go back to Spawn Ranch without an answer mm-hmm. and he's not getting one. And this is like basically the first cracks and even his made up bullshit armor is he doesn't know how to fix this situation. So this leads into the altercation with Bernard lots of Papa crow, <laughs> <laughs> the drug dealer thought to be the black Panther. Um, but he wasn't. He was not. Mm-hmm. So Manson now, he's, he's desperate to maintain control of the family. He's uh, desperate to find some money so that they can continue living. And now he's, he's the only thing he's got really going is this helter-skelter theme that he's telling people is going to happen. Uh, so it's hard to say, like, maybe he just... Maybe he didn't really believe that this dude was a Black Panther, but it fit the ideology. So he was telling everybody, like, oh, this is a Black Panther. And and this is a great time to just point out, like, this drug deal went bad because Charles Manson is really shitty at everything. It's terrible. He falsely identified him at a, as a Black Panther because Charles Manson's really shitty at everything. Also racist. I don't, we, we can't Super make this point racist. enough. Yeah, sorry. Super major, racist. Major racist. Okay. Uh, <laughs> about a month after that, I think it's about a month after that. Um, he, uh, finds out that this guy who's been in the, in the periphery of the family, whose name is, um, Gary Hinman. Uh, he thinks that Gary Hinman has come into some inheritance. And so he thinks, okay, this is the ticket. This is how we'll, um, we'll stay alive. He sends a couple of people, uh, who would be, heavy players later on to go see Gary Hinman and convince him that he needs to give Manson the money to give the family the money. Mm -hmm. Uh, He, it's not totally certain what he tells them to do, but they, they go there and they tie up Gary Hinman and they torture him and they um, hang out. They just live in his house for like two days, but he's not cracking. He doesn't, he doesn't believe what they're saying. So they call Manson and they say, okay, this isn't working. What do you want us to do? And Manson apparently says something like, take care of it, or you know what to do. You know what to do. You know what to do. So Tex Watson at this point. Allegedly. All of this is allegedly because they have all changed their stories. They all turned on him Dozens of times. Okay. Not just turned on him, but like one year they'll say this. The next year you interview him, they say something completely different happened. Then, you know, Charles Manson kills him himself. Like all of, like it changes constantly with these people. as if they were all on drugs the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they also turn on each other, which is an interesting thing. Um, so somehow Gary Hinman ends up dead at the hands of the family. Uh, a couple of days later, uh, this Manson uh, family member, Bobby Boussoulet, is found. He's arrested driving Hinman's car. So Wait, clearly not. Th- is that 
a Manson family member or is that an Adam Sandler character? <laughs> Can't it be both? Yes. <laughs> I'm Bobby Boucheret. <laughs> so this he, is great. Even the family members are dumb and don't even know what they're doing. Well, Boucheret is a failed actor as well. Mm. Uh, he was in a lot of indie films, which indie films were actually getting a lot more credibility at the time than they ever had before. Um, but once again, he could not stay in indie films because he couldn't follow direction, and he thought he was better than uh, you know the director. I don't have to do film. a mic check, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know who Mike Westfall is. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets arrested driving Hinman's car, and the murder weapon is found in the tire well. Uh, so now he's in prison for this murder. That oh, and the other thing I forgot to, to about that murder was. Uh, whether this was at Manson's direction, I'm not sure at at what point, but they, uh, made the scene, uh, they, they left, uh, things at the scene specifically to implicate the black Panthers. I think this is the first scene at which somebody scrawls something in blood and it's like pig or it's a paw print. Paw print. Uh, Yeah. For, to try to implicate the black Panthers Panthers. because John, I actually don't know if you mentioned they, uh, Charles Manson shoots, the cool Papa. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Bernard, uh, lots of Papa crow. So uh, Charles Manson shoots and, uh, uh shoots lots, lots of, Papa. of Papa. Kills and, him. Uh, shoots. Yeah. yeah he well, shoots to kill him. He shoots to kill him. But, but what he, you have to remember <laughs> here, <laughs> he's shitty at everything. <laughs> <laughs> so he believes that he's dead. <laughs> He believes that he has killed a member of the Black Panthers. Neither of those points are actually true. <laughs> he has not killed him, and he is not a member of the Black Panthers. But this is why they put the paw print up, because they're like, well, they're going to think that this guy had something to do with lots of Papa's death. And right. so this is a retaliation. Everybody walks free. We're out. We're, we're in the clear. Yeah. Yes. But Bobby Boussole gets arrested. He has the murder weapon. So this complicates things. Because what you have to remember about... <laughs> Guys, I think I'm getting it. (laughs) So now uh, there's greater urgency to escalate Helter Skelter, which sets into motion the uh, Sharon Tate murders. Now, at this point, Manson knows that Terry Melcher is no longer living at that house, but he knows that there are other people there and they are, they have to be Hollywood people. They have to be, um, piggies as the the family likes to call them and so they're going to use whoever happens to be there as an example make it look like this is a black panther killing and that will not only um clear uh bobby Boussole because this is obviously the same same group that's doing this killing he saw a movie where that got someone out of jail <laughs> when another killing happened exactly like it and they realized oh well we got the wrong guy yeah couldn't be this guy they're still out there. The real culprit's still at large. Awesome. Do you want to take a wild guess of wh- whether this plan works? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me which movie it was. Uh, so he dispatches uh, four family members to what is now the Roman Polanski Sharon Tate house. And he he does this because things are falling apart for him. Like he's got members leaving. Uh, people are saying, you know, you were saying this race war is going to break out. Um, it's not happening. And now we're getting arrested for things that you're telling us to do. So and he's got late fees at the blockbuster. 
shit's <laughs> falling apart. I mean, <laughs> like things are falling apart for him. So he thinks I have to start this war myself. Yeah. Uh, so they, the, the four go to the house. Um, the details of what happens there. Real fast. At this point, do you think, and I'm asking both of you, that he is aware that he's full of shit or do you think he's so crazy that he buys into it? I think it's a mixture of both, personally. I, I absolutely... Like, I think he has given himself this self-importance, but I do think he has moments of realization where it's just like... Uh, he has these, like, oh, shit moments where he's just yeah. like, oh, they're listening to me. Or, like, they expect things to happen and they're I not happening. moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm in too deep now. I got to yeah. keep gotta this keep lie going. Yeah. And that's all he has, really, at this point. He doesn't have a music career. This is the only thing he's ever been really successful at, is manipulating people into doing his bidding. And he wasn't even that And he's not even good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to introduce a third scenario in a little bit, but I I want to get through what what happens here first. Um, So at the Tate household, um, there are five people killed, um, including Sharon Tate. J.C. Bring, who was... I'm not doing an hallucination. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, Sharon, and, you know, I, I, I would appreciate, can we spend a little bit of time talking about, like, who these victims were? Because yeah, as much as Charles Manson was a, a no-talent clown, like, he, the, the victims of his crimes were incredibly talented, up-and-coming, next generation of Hollywood and gonna-do-really-great-things people. And I feel like now all of a sudden they are just they're just victims Victims. they're victims of the manson family and that is not fair like you're making charles manson famous which is all he ever wanted in the first place and these people that actually worked for it and were earning it that he killed on a whim because he was too much of a loser to know where his real victim really lived um you know now he like he is in the spotlight when it really should be them um yeah, so Sharon Tate, we've talked a little bit about in the, the Tarantino uh, episode. Um, she was right on the cusp of breaking through and becoming a pretty major star. Um, she was also um, in, like, not in the best place in a personal life, but she was about to have a baby. She was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, it was very possible that she was going to leave Roman Polanski, um, who was, even then... Uh, a great person. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, Jay Sebring, who was this, um, sort of the, the first star stylist, um, to sort of take men's styling beyond haircuts and make it into like a full fledged industry. Um, he, he is what he like single-handedly took men's haircuts from, um, a barbershop to a hairstylist. Um, he went from, uh, a barbershop would charge a dollar fifty for a haircut. He was charging like twenty five dollars because he had people in there uh, shampooing. Uh, he he brought over handheld hair dryers from Europe. Uh, he's what made them popular over here. Um, he he was doing things as a stylist that no one was doing before. People were flying him out to Vegas. Um, he was uh, doing the hair of the Rat Pack. Uh, he, wow. I mean, he was really a trailblazer yeah. in his industry. Interesting. And he and Sharon Tate had had a relationship prior to Polanski coming into the picture. So, and the the shorthand version that Steve McQueen gives in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is essentially true. Um, 
they were inseparable, the three of them. Mm -hmm. Whenever Polanski was in town, the three of them would all be together. Whenever Polanski wasn't in town, it was just Jay and uh, Sharon Tate. Sebring is the guy that's played by... Emil Hirsch. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so Sebring, um, like it was kind of this. He had great hair. He did have great hair. <laughs> Sorry. He, he should have. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was kind of this like, not even a, it was a well-documented secret that uh, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski had gotten together even while she was dating uh, Jay. Jay. Yeah. So. Uh, it, and he was allegedly heartbroken. Allegedly, allegedly, um, there like there was a documentary that they did on Roman Polanski where he was in the bath and uh, he yells to Sharon Tate to get him a new drink and she comes in and hands him a lemonade while she is dating Jay and so like it's a well known like the worst kept secret in Hollywood and that's saying something so. But uh, so there's one story about it where Jay says, I'm I want to meet this Roman Polanski that you are leaving me for. Um, And so Sharon Tate sets up a meeting. She invites Roman Polanski to lunch. He has no idea this is happening. Jay shows up and he walks up to the table and he looks at Roman Polanski and he says, hey, man, cool. I just wanted to meet you. (laughs) And then they sat down and had lunch together. And the like three of them, the three of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as John was saying, there's really differing accounts of like how heartbroken he actually was. And some, some people think he was devastated. He was going to propose to her. Other people think he was just so excited to be around Roman Polanski. He's like, Hey, yeah. if this gets me in, this, this works out for me too. Yeah. 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 But so, um, the, the, the two of them are at the house. Um, Abigail Folger, the heiress of the Folger coffee, uh, company is a friend of theirs. Uh, she's staying at the house at this point. Um, along with Wojtek Frykowski, who is uh, a friend of Roman Polanski's. He's uh, a Polish artist and I think cinematographer. I could be wrong about that, but anyway, he's, uh, been a friend of Polanski's for a long time. And, um, uh, he and Abigail Folger have kind of a thing going on. Um, and I think he was living at the house too at this time, or at least just staying there for a little bit. And Polanski was gone for like long periods of time. So Sharon Tate being eight months pregnant, uh, her and Jay would invite people over to help take care of her and take care of the house because Roman was off shooting movies. Yeah. The, the storyline goes that this house like always had people there, lots of extra people there. Um, and then Stephen Parent, who was visiting the the, the caretaker, um, I forget what his name is, but so this was this was a rental house. Um, there was a rather uh, flamboyant Hollywood character who owned this house, um, but he had moved out and was renting it previously to Terry Melcher and then to Polanski and Sharon Tate, and then he had there was like a caretaker's house on the property, and so that was rented as well. Um, and uh, so th- those are the five people who are killed that night. They leave, the family members leave uh, writing on the wall. Um, it's a really nasty um, circumstances. Like it's, they didn't just kill these people. Like they brutalized their bodies. And that was by Charles Manson's design. He, yes. he said, not only do you have to do this, you have to make it look as terrible as possible. Now they... So they go back. They go back to the ranch. Um, he asks for details, and 
the the storyline here gets a little foggy, but um, here here's yeah. where the story <laughs> gets a little. <laughs> well, so the next day they're expecting that um, the news is going to be all over the Black Panthers. Now the Black Panthers have struck again. This is the link between these these murders, um, and that doesn't happen. Um, instead, everybody's talking about how this is a drug deal gone wrong. Um, which doesn't do them any good and, in fact, probably implicates them further because they're so ingrained in the the drug scene. So now Charles says, we got to do another one. Um, So he recalls, he he drives them around. He goes with them this time, and he drives around um, for hours trying to find a place to go. And um, possibly he's just too hopped up and he can't focus or he's, you know, panicking or whatever. But he finally settles on a house that's located next to a house that he had been to a party at one time. And this belongs to um, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca, um, who are owners of a supermarket chain, okay, local supermarket chain. He goes up to the house first, and again, the details are a little bit um, nebulous, but he, he verifies who's in there. He comes back. He says, okay, go get them, sends the other members in there. And then uh, they kill them, same brutal ways, um, more messages scrawled. They get back, he gets into the car, and then, or they all get back into the car. He drives them away from the scene, and then he says, okay, now go do it again. He drops them off at a point, and he drives back to the Spawn Ranch and says, okay, you hitchhike home. Go kill somebody else, and then hitchhike home. At this point, uh, I think it's Linda Casbian is starting to like really have some hesitation about this. And so she deliberately goes, they, they, they target a house. She deliberately goes to the wrong door and knocks on it. Um, and they awaken the person who lives there. And so then they, they panic that's called off. They hitchhike back to the ranch. What, what happens now is like the, the most asinine criminal investigation of potentially of all time, because there are two separate groups that are looking into these various incidents, the, the LAPD um, homicide unit and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's office. Um, it takes them for various reasons, almost three months before they have finally connected Manson to these murders. Oh, I didn't know it went that long in that time though. They, if two weeks after the murders, the LA County Sheriff's office raids the spawn ranch because they've been monitoring them for car theft and, uh, storing up weapons. Uh, they've been watching this ranch for months. They arrest Charles Manson and the majority of the family, everybody who's there and let them go and let them go two days later. Mm. Yeah. And they get Manson. They look at the details of the, the Tate LaBianca murders. They call the detectives that are investigating that. And they say, you know what? There are some interesting links here between this group at Spawn Ranch and the details of the murders you're oh, investigating. Okay. I thought I thought they hadn't connected the two sets of murders yet. Oh yeah. Well, okay. they sort of hadn't. They, at this point, or at least for the first couple of weeks, they were they were still operating on those being independent incidents. And like, what did uh, part of the reason, you know, we can, we can talk about the police investigation and things like that, but, um, and there were holes, there were problems there, but sure. at the same time, like these killings were random 
because Charles Manson was so bad at everything he did. Right. So while he thought he was going after Terry Melcher, someone he knew really well, instead it was this house because he didn't know where else to go. So he sent his followers there. And then he thought he was targeting people who he had been to a party at their house, but he got the houses mixed up and sent them to the wrong one. Like, and so in the police eyes, there's no connection here. Like what in the world is going on? How is this happening? If anything, it's a copycat. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, someone is inspired by the Tate murders to go out and kill these people. And these are halfway across town. Like they're not close to each other. So the, but the, the sheriff's office calls the, the detectives investigating the murders and says, there's some strange, you know, things here that could possibly link up. Maybe we should talk about this. LEPD's like, nah, nah, it's drugs. Thanks. We're good. We know this is a drug deal. Uh, and they had good evidence to suggest that. There, were, there was a trio of drug dealers that were part of the same social circles and had been seen at the house, had had connections with Manson, um, and they were like heavily pursuing that group. So in somewhat in their defense, they did have leads that it, they were going after. And it also doesn't help quell the panic if you come out and say, actually, we think these killings are connected. We have no idea who did it. Or it's this random group of hippies that's living out <laughs> on a ranch and they're coming into town whenever they feel like it and doing these things. Yeah. It's much better for them to say it was a drug deal gone bad. Go right. home, nothing to see here. And the and the sheriff's office is fine with it because they've been investigating these people for months. What's it going to say about them if they strike two two weeks after these people have already murdered seven people? Yeah. So they don't want that count- accountability. But eventually, Manson takes the followers off of Spawn Ranch into the desert to Death Valley where they're going to look for the hole in the ground. He keeps them busy by having them search for this mystical hole in the ground. Uh while he's he literally means a hole in the ground too. Yeah. <laughs> like this is not oh you know they went and lived in a hole. In, no, they were legitimately looking for Searching a hole, for in, a the hole ground. in the ground. And the the crazy part about all this is they get arrested Here's multiple the times. Crazy part. <laughs> well, about this particular <laughs> segment, <laughs> they get arrested multiple times. Like all uh, police are on these people constantly. And they're still they're they're not making the connections. They're getting released, but eventually, due to auto theft, they've been stealing Volkswagens and converting them into dune buggies. And uh, they they the police in Death Valley start to see vehicles that are related to crimes that they're investigating. And so they finally tie all of this together to this to this group of hippies living out in the desert. So they do another raid and they arrest all of them. And at this point, uh, Susan. Sadie Atkins, if there is like a leader of the Manson girls, it's uh-huh. typically ascribed to her. She was one of the first followers and she had a criminal record of her own. She was a, um, a prostitute and had a really like nasty streak in her, like from the get go, seemingly. I, I just wanted to ask Uma Thurman's daughter in Tarantino's movie. Was she it's based on Caspian? Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that was an actual person or if it was just showing that. Yeah, those circumstances are a little bit different, but she is inspired by that character. Um, So anyway, Susan Atkins brags to one of her cellmates while she's arrested about all the stuff that she's been involved in. That cellmate then calls the police. At this point, the, um, the district attorney finally picks up all the pieces here and figures out what the connections are. They go to trial. 
the prosecution bases the whole thing. It's, it's a really interesting challenge because he has to prove that the members of the family acted of their own volition. They were guilty of murder, but that they did so under the influence of Charles Manson. Yeah. I was wondering about how that plays out. It's really tricky. And, um, there's a, there are a whole lot of holes in it. So what the, the key witness for the prosecution and she kept like going back and forth about what, whether she wanted to be a witness. And there's a really interesting story there of why she ultimately decided to, Mm -hmm. but, um, so, but we're not going to listen to it. Do you, do you want me to tell you the story of why? It involves uh, one of John's favorite places, Disney. Yeah. Um, they say that they will take her to Disneyland, I believe, uh, if she refuses to testify against Charles Manson. And she says, okay. And they go to Disneyland. And on the way back from Disney. Wait, who, who, who tells her that? Uh, one of Manson's other followers. Uh, part of the family. Says, okay. we'll take you to Disneyland yeah. if you just don't. Don't testify against Charles Manson. Yeah. She goes, all right. They go to Disneyland. By all accounts, have a wonderful time. <laughs> They're on their way back. And she's like, I, you know, I can't believe I was going to do that to Charles Manson. And uh, she says the last thing she remembers is the other person going, I can't believe I put t- uh, 10 tablets of LSD in your hamburger. And then she blacks out. <laughs> and then when she comes to in the hospital, she goes, I'm going to testify against Charles. <laughs> <laughs> they had it. Like they were in the clear and then they messed it up again. Wow. Uh, so right. I want to hear about the CIA. All right. Well, and hey. this is a perfect uh, pivot point because the trial is really where all of this starts to come to light because as I said, the, the prosecution's entire case is predicated on this helter-skelter theory that Manson was a conspirator, like he had, he had the conspiracy to commit murder was the, the charge that they got him on because he had set out this case um, and they were all following it um, in pursuit of this race war. Um, but the, is, and, and it works. It's conspiracy to commit race war. <laughs> A crime. So that follower, a uh, drugged hamburger, gets up on the stage. Uh, and <laughs> man, never thought I would say that sentence. But uh, uh, she gets up there and uh, they're like, you know, did you act under the direction of Charles Manson or, you know, did you do this yourself? And she says, like, uh, she goes, well, Charles always, Charlie always said, you do what you want to do. You can do anything you want to do. Um, I don't care what you want to do. Um, you do it. He goes, but she goes, but when he wanted you to do something, he knew that you needed to do it. And while that all sounds like convoluted nonsense, mm-hmm. which it is, that was a half court, like nothing but net shot yeah. from the prosecution because <laughs> that's exactly what they needed her to say is she could do anything she wanted at any time, but they, but, but it was she always knew his influence. It was his idea. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Interesting. It seems ridiculous that, that, that would hold up in court, but it did. And they all got prosecuted. They all got initially, uh, the death sentence, this isn't everybody, but it's it's the the people who perpetrated the murders and um, Manson, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they were eventually later commuted to uh, life sentences. 
Um, because t- California in 72 abolished the death, death penalty. penalty. Okay. Um, so where this, where this sort of unravels is um, in the pursuit of the researching the uh, anniversary or in, in reporting on the anniversary and its in, uh, effect in Hollywood, uh, that reporter Tom O'Neill that I mentioned earlier starts uh, looking in. He interviews Bugliosi, Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor at the DA, who had made his name on this case and has been profiting off of it ever since. Um, he uh, looks at the DA files. He looks into Terry Melcher and starts recognizing inconsistencies in Terry Melcher's story and the fact that Terry Melcher, um, the, the whole, the whole theory that, um, Manson perpetrated or uh, initiated these murders to instill fear in Terry Melcher. And he was uh, getting back at the system, mm-hmm. um, is challenged by the fact that there is evidence that Terry Melcher was hanging out with the family after the murders, multiple times he is seen by Manson family members at the ranch uh-huh. and even goes out to death Valley at least once. Um, so Tom O'Neill starts asking him, well, what about this? What about this? And word gets back that Terry Melcher is calling Bugliosi and saying, you're supposed to take care of this. You were supposed to take care of all of this. And so that sets off further investigation and it, it, he looks into the, um, the LAPD and the, the sheriff's office, talks to the detectives there and asks questions like, you know, why, how did you let this go? How did you not see the consistencies in there? And he starts to realize that there are these like concentric circles surrounding all of this that create a picture of Charles Manson, not necessarily as innocent, but as something of a patsy. And so this is where it starts to look like a conspiracy theory. I'm not going to allege that it is a conspiracy. Um, I don't, I don't believe that any of the stuff that I'm about to present directly connects, but it, it does challenge the prosecution story and certainly implicate a lot of other people in what happened. So the LAPD, while all of this is going on, the LAPD is trying to bring down the black Panthers, the black Panthers in Los Angeles, is the it's the second largest concentration of Black Panther activity next to California, uh, Oakland, San Francisco. Who has connections with the Black Panthers or thinks he does? Charles Manson. Meanwhile, the LA County Sheriff's Office is working uh, with the CIA to investigate and potentially undermine youth activist anti-war movements. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to an act that Lyndon Johnson made in 1968, where he launches two programs, um, Operation Chaos, which is a CIA program, and Operation um, Counter Intel Pro, I think, is what it's called. If there is a Counter Intel Pro, it is Charles Manson. (laughs) (laughs) Co-Intel Pro is what it is called. Um, And in order the 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 idea was that um, youth movements were considered like the greatest threat to national security because they could be compromised by uh, uh, communism, and so the FBI and the CIA, for the first time, at least as far as we know, are now conducting espionage operations on domestic citizens, 
and infiltrating groups like the Black Panthers to try to ferret out any connections to Russia or just break them up, undermine them. Thank God they stopped. (laughs) Yeah, right. So this all gets traced back to San Francisco, uh, where Manson, of course, was living when he got out of prison. While he was there, he was seen almost daily at a clinic that was run by this guy whose name is... The the other thread throughout all of this are people's amazing names. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, This guy named... Dr. Jolly West, whose Dr. name is... Dr. Jolly West. <laughs> Louis Jolin West. Um, this is Manson's parole officer when he gets out of prison. And he, he's a parole officer for a lot of people. But within three to six months of him taking over Manson's case, he's no longer a parole officer anybody, for anybody else. He's just Manson's parole officer. Weird. Yeah. And, and so he's running this clinic. He's... Uh, treating hippies for drug-related illnesses and stuff. And Charles Manson is coming in here like every single day and hanging out with this guy. And uh, probably you could say like, well, he's he's studying Manson or he just thinks Manson's fascinating or maybe Manson was just annoying. He wouldn't go away. Also a common thread. Yeah. yeah. This guy, uh, Louis Jolin Jolly West, is one of the main scientists involved in MK Ultra. Oh, wow. Which is the CIA's program for experimenting with mind control through drugs. How is he involved in it? He is one of the, the main architects of the experimentation, going back to 1953. He is uh, famously known for injecting LSD into an elephant and killing it accidentally. How much LSD would kill an elephant? Well... Let he found you. out. Because, <laughs> I mean, I a total of 2,800 milligrams over 11 minutes. Oh, I've done that. <laughs> no, I, it's, it's not a drug that usually kills people, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know how, like, it affects, you know, if your body mass is a factor in that. But you guys might not know this, but an elephant <laughs> has a higher body mass than a human. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to really tell us something like interesting. <laughs> no, I have no idea how many milligrams of acid usually is. So that was useless to me, but that, uh, thank you. You're right. welcome. Yeah. <laughs> the other interesting thing about uh, Jolly West is that he performed the psychic evaluation on Jack Ruby after Jack Ruby was arrested. Who's Jack Ruby? Jack Ruby is the guy who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay. So Jack Ruby gets arrested. A couple days later, the CIA sends their expert in mind control to perform an evaluation on Jack Ruby. Hours later, he has what is called a nervous breakdown and is from then on no longer the same person that he was before. Yeah, that's some question. It's very strange. So... Again, not none of this, there is no like solid line to any of this. And I don't believe that there is a solid line to it, but it does it. The, the thing that's fascinating to me about it is that Manson is at Manson could only happen at this time and this place. That's the only way that this works out, right? Like he is in the middle of these nefarious operations that are not connected, but are sort of, coinciding at best and 
leaning off of one another at worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know? I, I, I think that is um, what scared a lot of people about the Manson murders is the seemingly like randomness of them. Like mm-hmm. you know, so many people saw these things happen and thought, you know, like that could be us. That's why, yeah. you know, John was saying a lot of people got security and things. Um, and it's just crazy when like all of this came out, how many things had to fall exactly the right way. Like Charles Manson was just not famous enough to make yeah. this happen. He was dealing with just the right people that would buy into his bullshit at just the right time and in just the right place. And it was really this perfect storm of chaos. Yeah. And if you look at it from the perspective of like, if you were going to assign some rationale behind this, if you're going to say like, this does, there's a reason that this all happened. This, this, what there was an intent behind it. It does sort of track radicalism is is gaining traction throughout the 60s it it is considered a national security threat manson lands in san francisco coinciding with this expert in mind control while this influx of susceptible people are there moves to los angeles where the police are actively trying to undermine the black panthers mm-hmm. which is part of his philosophy whether it's his philosophy or it's something that was planted in him or whatever doesn't matter. He believes it at, at least enough to convince his followers of it and, and, you know, create this whole, uh, philosophy around it. So it sort of works toward their goals. And then what happens after he gets arrested and charged with the, with the, uh, murders, it's like the end of the whole hippie movement in effect. Like it, it, if you, if you are going to ascribe an intent behind this whole thing, if you're going to say that all of these things are connected intentionally, it worked. It killed the momentum of the the hippie counterculture. Counterculture, yeah. And yeah. it left a stain on the sixties. I mean, he is considered the stain of the sixties. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I also think it's super interesting. Like the counterculture totally played into Charles Manson being who he was because he sucked so bad at everything. <laughs> um, he got to spin that as they're trying to keep me out of the establishment. Mm-hmm. Like all of these famous people that are rejecting me and therefore rejecting us, they're part of the establishment. And he was able to say that at the time where anybody could be part of the establishment as long as they were successful and you weren't. And what really kind of was this wake up call to Hollywood was all of them wanted to be anti-establishment. They all wanted to be part of this, uh, hippie culture and hippie movement. And, you know, you had the beach boys that wanted to be like anti-establishment surfer Mm -hmm. dudes. And you had, uh, you know, Roman Polanski who is like anti-establishment making these movies. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody made. And so while they got to say, you know, we're anti-establishment and that's world where the world's going, then comes along Charles Manson, who is absolutely anti-establishment to the point where he cannot function in normal society. But and then he does what he does, and then everybody realizes. Whoa, like, whoa, whoa. we didn't mean it like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like we didn't mean it like Come that, on, guys. We're just playing here. Yeah, yeah. It, and I kind of, you know, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but I, I kind of almost see parallels to where Hollywood was at that time, our government kind of is today where it's like these outsiders want to take control, but it would be like if an outsider 
got into a government position and then actually toppled the government and like completely <laughs> destroyed our like entire society. And then everybody's like, well, we didn't mean that's not what that. we meant. Yeah. 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 What, like a reality star? <laughs> Is that what you I mean? I wasn't going to get into it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the legacy has been, uh, kind of frustrating because like you said, it, after those murders, it, it becomes all about Charles Manson and he got what he wanted. He got to be famous and he got to be famous in like such a bullshit way. Um, yeah. he got to be fa- not just how he became famous, but the romanticizing around Charles Manson and saying he's this master manipulator. And, you know, we, we talked about how it was the perfect storm of chaos and he yeah. came along at just the right time to make this happen. Um, and, you know, we have like, that's what I really want to stress is like, if this happens 10 years later, he's another lunatic on the sidewalk yelling about how the world's going to end yeah. and everybody walks by him and ignores him. But, you know, he just happened to get caught up in this storm and goes back to the other thing where you're saying, did he, did he believe this or did he not? Yeah. And, you know, part of me wants to say like, he got caught up in it and then he didn't know how to get out of it. And then, here he is, but he's he's a bumbling idiot that was a huge loser, and he just found bigger losers to listen to him. <laughs> he's not this like criminal mastermind, like one of the greatest manipulators of all time. Like he just got like lucky in the worst way. Yeah. Well, final thoughts. What do you think about <laughs> Charles Manson, Travis? <laughs> no, I, um, you know, uh, and a little bit of this, you know, a shout out to Drew. I wanted to. Oh, he's not going to. I know he's not going to listen to this, but uh, but I, I thought he was absolutely fair. And I just wanted to, like, really get across with somebody like Charles Manson. It's like he's not a hero. He's not like you know, the symbol of the sixties. He is not like this really creepy dude. He's a, he's a loser. Drew Manson isn't even on Travis's top 10 favorite coolest murderers. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I like, this is, this is what I am like. Glad Charles Manson is becoming is either forgotten or a joke Yeah, because that's what he deserved to be. And for too long, he got to be in the spotlight. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I didn't know a lot about him. Something that has been in the news kind of recent or not, you know, in the past decade or so was that there was this woman who, uh, was going to see him in jail and oh, yes. was engaged <laughs> with him. And then eventually it came out that, uh, is this correct? That her whole goal was to get his body after he died and she was just manipulating him. And yes. she was going to travel around the U.S. with it and show it as like a sideshow. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Charles Manson deserved. <laughs> and once again, it, it just underscores the fact that he could do nothing himself. Um, and it was somebody else that was going to take advantage of him in the end. Yeah. Well, thank you, Travis, for being a part <laughs> of this. Uh, thank you. It was it was so much. I'm sorry I babbled on and on. But no, that, I that was so was much great. fun. It was great. Very helpful. Yes. Let's uh, throw this one on the black bus and send it into the desert. I think there's a hole that leads to the archive. 